0: Well, again, good morning to you all. Thanks. If, um, if you happen to be new here with us this morning and you don't know me or don't recognize me, my name's Tyler Miller. I'm the associate pastor here at Bethel. Uh, our lead pastor, Chris McGarvey, is away spending time with family around the holidays. Uh, and I'm uh, privileged and blessed to be able to bring the word to you this morning. So um, if you have been with us the past several weeks, you'll know that Pastor Chris has been leading us through a series through the book of Isaiah called God Saves. Um, Well, this Sunday and next, so the next two Sundays, uh, we're going to be taking a break from that series. And Alex Kirk and I, uh, we're gonna be doing a short series um, on prayer and fasting. Uh, We're calling that series Renewing Disciplines. And I wanna take a moment to explain what I mean by that. So this title has an intentional double meaning. Uh, On the one hand, we're using the term renewing as a verb. Uh, So in that sense, uh, we are taking the action of renewing our focus on prayer. Uh, So as we take this turn toward the new year, uh, we want to be people of prayer. We're called by God to be people of prayer. And so we want to renew our focus on this discipline. Um, But on the other hand, we're using the term renewing as an adjective, Um, focusing on the fact that prayer in and of itself, as we practice it, is renewing. It's renewing in the sense that as we pray to God, we actually do experience spiritual renewal. Uh, So I I hope that's helpful to you uh, this morning, and I pray that the Lord works powerfully among us in this short series here. Uh, So with this topic in mind, renewing discipline, uh, let's dive into our text for this morning. We'll be reading Matthew 6 verses 5 to 15. If you're using the Pew Bible, that text can be found on page 811. So um, please stand with me for the reading of the word. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. So, uh, just the other day, uh, Whitney and I uh, watched a movie. It's quickly becoming a classic among kids. It's called Frozen. Um, I don't know if you've seen Frozen, but uh, if you have, and parents, let me go ahead and assure you I'm not about to break into a rousing rendition of Let It Go. <laughs> um, but if, if you have seen the movie, um, you probably know and, and love it. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, let me take a second to explain this to you, uh, and I won't go into all the details, but just a few plot points that can help us, uh, I think, help illuminate our text this morning. So Frozen's an animated movie. It centers on two sisters born into a royal family. Uh, the older sister, Elsa, she has these magical abilities. She can um, create snow and ice. Uh, her sister doesn't have any magical abilities, but she's likable as well, um, But on the day of Elsa, the older sister's coronation as queen, um, her younger sister, Anna, she meets and she falls in love with and she gets engaged to this young prince from another kingdom named Hans. Uh, Hans seems great at first. Um, He's likable, he's handsome, charming, uh, and he seems to genuinely fall in love with Anna. Uh, He even goes out of his way uh, at one point in the movie when Elsa runs away because her powers have been exposed and Anna follows her to, to try to help her and convince her to come back. Um, Hans even takes care of the kingdom while both of them are gone. Like, Elsa had accidentally frozen it over and Hans is there making sure that people have warm blankets and that they're taken care of. I mean, everything indicates that this guy had a good heart. Um, but uh, as you approach the end of the movie, Hans's true intentions start to become clear. Um, there's one point where Anna, the younger sister and his fiance uh, is dying and she needs help. And so naturally, she turns to Hans, uh, her supposed true love. Uh, and it's at this point that he surprisingly reveals that he doesn't love Anna, uh, nor is he actually going to help her. Um, in fact, he's actually going to do the opposite. He's going to leave her to die because his true intention, he says, is to eventually do away with both uh, Anna and Elsa And take over the kingdom. Uh, You see, Hans looked pious on the outside, but on the inside he had a bad heart. Uh, To put it simply, he did the right things, but he did them for the wrong reasons. In our text today, in Matthew 6, um, the focus centers on prayer. And here Jesus is warning his followers about a similar pitfall doing the right thing, in this case, prayer but the wrong heart, the wrong motive, and the wrong beliefs. Um, But Jesus, graciously, doesn't leave his followers there. He gives them a great promise. He gives us a great promise, and he actually teaches us how to pray. So as we work through the passage, I hope that we'll see not just our need to pray, but um, that we'll also see how to pray, and that we'll see why we should pray, And it's important to note at the outset here that this passage occurs within Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So if you're familiar with Matthew's Gospel, uh, the Sermon on the Mount occurs from uh, chapters 5 to 7. And in this great sermon, what Jesus is doing is he's explaining what it looks like to be a true citizen of his kingdom, to be a true disciple. And in doing so, he lists characteristics that should make up true disciples. He says things like, "'Blessed are the merciful,' Blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, the pure in heart, and so forth. Uh, And Jesus also defines these true kingdom citizens, uh, moral and spiritual obligations. He addresses things like lust, uh, anger, divorce, love. And so when we come to Matthew 6, 5 to 15, Jesus is in the process of explaining how his people should go about three spiritual acts— giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. And the central overarching point that applies to all three areas, I think, occurs in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles open, look with me at Matthew 6, 1. It's there where Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus isn't saying there that performing these acts giving to the poor, praying, and fasting makes a person righteous. You can't earn righteousness. Uh, Righteous, righteousness only comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Instead, what Jesus is talking about is he's addressing what it looks like for a person to live out his righteousness. And his point is that a true citizen of the kingdom should not Uh, practice his righteousness in this context, giving to the poor, praying and fasting, with the wrong motive in this context in order to be seen. That person, Jesus says, won't be rewarded by God. And so with prayer specifically in mind, um, let's look at our verses here for this morning. Let's start in verses five and six and point one of our outline. We must pray with the right heart. Jesus says, and when you pray, You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So here, Jesus is taking what he's said in verse 1 of Matthew 6, and he's applying it to the subject of prayer, Uh, and he gives an example of insincere prayer uh, and provides a warning, and along with it, he provides a positive command with a promise uh, and so first, he warns us here is not to be like the hypocrites. Um, and so here, when Jesus is saying that these, these people, they, they love to pray in order to be seen, they love to pray in public, Jesus isn't condemning public prayer, I don't think. In fact, just a few chapters past this one, in Matthew eleven twenty five 25, and 26, Jesus himself prays out loud in front of others. So instead, rather than condemning the act of praying in public, Uh, Jesus is condemning the act of praying in public in order to be seen. Listen to one commentator, Daniel Doriani, reflect on this. I think this is helpful. He says that these hypocrites, they love to stand, quote, they love to stand and pray during public worship. Crafting elegant phrases to express lofty thoughts, they hope to impress the gathered assembly with their piety. Hypocrites also love to pray outside on the street corners. By custom, Pious Jews living in Jerusalem were supposed to stop, drop, and pray when a trumpet blew in the temple for the daily afternoon sacrifice. The hypocrite was pleased to find himself in a public place then, so all would see him fall to his knees and pray, end quote. So Jesus is warning his followers about the heart that prays in public in order to be seen. And the reason for the warning, the reason he gives is significant. He says... Truly I say to you, they have received their reward." You see, praying in order to be seen results at best in an earthly reward, the praise of men. But that's not the kind of reward that we should want. That's not the kind of reward that Jesus calls us to. Um, This is like what Jesus mentions uh, later on in this chapter, in chapter 6, when he contrasts treasure on earth with treasure in heaven. There he says, not to lay up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Why would you want to do that? Why would we do that? Why do we do that? That treasure is fleeting. It's not going to last. And it can't ever satisfy us. It's a broken cistern that can't hold any water. So Jesus is graciously here pointing us towards something so much better, toward a heavenly treasure, a better way So he commands his disciples to pray to God in secret. Uh, So look at verse six, he says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So while the reward here isn't specified, I think what Jesus is referring to, at least, refers to the reward of God himself, which will ultimately be realized by the true disciple when he uh, sees God in heaven, when he dwells with God forever and ever in heaven. That's the reward. God's the reward. I think this makes sense in the context of this passage and in the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is explaining what it looks like to be a true disciple in his kingdom. Um, And uh, here he's warning that the hypocrite, the hypocrite's not concerned with God's glory, the hypocrite wants the praise, and so he prays in public in order to be seen. That person cannot, the person should not, uh, expect to get God in the end. How could he? He never wanted God in the first place. But the person who prays in secret, the true disciple, is genuinely concerned about meeting with the Father. He wants that time with God because God has his heart. He isn't off in the street trying to impress people. He's in the secret place, meeting with his God. And that's the person that the Father, the most soul-satisfying being in the universe, will reward with himself. So, explaining uh, what the true disciple looks like and the encouragement is, don't pray to be seen. Instead, go to the Father in the secret place. Let him have your heart. So I think the question that we need to ask ourselves is, What's, our, what's the posture of our hearts in prayer? Do we care more about what others think when we pray? Or is our primary concern to meet with God? So uh, just to be honest here, I mean, if you're like me, you're feeling pretty convicted about right now. Um, I know that I've prayed before wondering what other people are thinking. Uh, I know that I've prayed before uh, hoping to pray well so that other people would Think better of me that I'm super spiritual or something. Um, that's sinful. That's, that's horribly twisted. Like Think about it. Like, praying to God in order to win the affection of men is like a husband um, singing the praises of his wife in order to be seen by another girl. It's horribly twisted. So if you see your sin here, What should we do? What do we do in response? I think we can do at least four things. So one, we repent. So we confess our sin to God and we ask him to forgive us and we believe that he will. Like the rich promise for the believer in 1 John 1, 9 is that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So Christian, if you're convicted by this, Confess your sins to God and believe that he forgives you. And if you're here with us this morning, and if you're not a Christian, uh, again, the implication is the same. Repent. Turn to God and trust him to forgive you. Confess your sin to him and cling and hope to Jesus. Trust him as your savior. So one, repent. But two, as a Christian, remind yourself who you are in Christ. I think this is really important because I think sometimes when we see our sin uh, and we feel conviction, there can be a temptation to wallow, like wallow in it. We, we sit in despair and it's shame, and it's a despair and shame that we have a hard time getting out of. Um, but no, when we confess our sin to God, He forgives us. There's good reason for us to lift up our heads because God is the lifter of our heads. So remind yourself who you are in Christ. You're not righteous because of what you've done. Uh, You're righteous because of what Jesus did. He succeeded where you failed. He never once prayed hypocritically. And what's more, he went to the cross and he died not only for your hypocritical prayers, but for every single one of your sins, past, present, and future. Your debt as a Christian has been paid in full because of Christ. That's good reason to rejoice. That's good reason to see our sin, confess it, and move forward in hope. And so three, with Jesus as your high priest, do what Hebrews 4.16 says, and with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find <laughs> grace in time of need. So ask God day by day to change your heart. Ask him to change your heart in such a way that you delight in him far above and beyond any temptation to delight in the praise of other people. Ask God to change your heart so that you sincerely, genuinely want to seek him in prayer. And then four, be aware of your desires and motivations when you pray, especially in public. So repent of your hypocritical motives when you see them. Uh, Invite other people in your life to hold you accountable. And continue to pray that God would satisfy you with himself. And and when you do find yourself praying in public, again, remember, this passage isn't condemning public prayer. It's condemning public prayer that wants to be seen. So when you pray in public, be aware of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. So we must pray with the right heart, uh, but we shouldn't stop there. We must also pray with the right beliefs. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, and when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So in these verses, Jesus shifts the warning. Uh, It's it's a warning that moves from praying like hypocrites to praying like the Gentiles who think that they're going to be rewarded uh, or or heard for their many words. Um, And here, like in verses five and six, Jesus is giving us a negative example and a positive command. So the negative example here being the Gentiles, whereas earlier it was hypocrites. Here the positive command being pray to your father. Uh, Your father uh, knows what you need before you ask him. So um, looking at the verse, um, I think we need first to uh, figure out who, who exactly Jesus is referring to when he mentions Gentiles. Um, I think one commentator, R.T. France, has an insightful comment here, um, not just on uh, the identity of Gentiles here, but also uh, Jesus' words in in these two verses as a whole. He says, quote, the emphasis here is not so much on their not being Jewish. So uh, you had Jews and then you had Gentiles, an indication for people who just aren't Jewish. But R.T. France is saying the emphasis here is not so much on their not being Jewish as on their being religious outsiders, people who do not understand what it means to know God as a heavenly father. So instead of trusting a father to fulfill their needs, they think that they must badger a reluctant deity into taking notice of them. It's an approach to prayer which values quantity and perhaps volume rather than quality. It's not necessarily purely mechanical, but rather obtrusive and unnecessary. It assumes that the purpose of prayer is first to demand God's attention and then to inform him of needs he may have overlooked. The issue is not the method or the frequency of prayer, but the attitude of faith which underlies and inspires it, end quote. did you see, the, the warning here is not to pray like those who don't know God. The warning is not to pray like those uh, who view God the wrong way, who think that if they offer up these empty phrases in, the, in their many words, God's going to hear them. Like these people, they don't see, maybe they don't know, maybe they don't believe uh, the wonderful truth that Jesus is pointing out in verse 8, that, uh, where he says, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. As France says, it's not the method or the frequency of prayer that's the issue here. Uh, so the Father knowing what we need before we ask, it doesn't mean we shouldn't pray. Uh, no, God uses our prayers to accomplish his, pur- to accomplish his purposes. So in fact, we, we definitely should pray, and often. Um, and the Father knowing what we need also doesn't mean that we're sinning if we come to him on multiple occasions asking for the same thing. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying either. Um, in fact, I think it's a, a fine and good thing to go to God and, for example, ask Him to pray for those in your life who don't know Christ. If you have people in your life who don't know Jesus, and I'm sure all of us do, I think that we can pray to God regularly, daily, to save those people. I think that's a fine prayer to pray, and I don't think that's what Jesus is condemning here. So it's not the method or the frequency, as France says, of prayer, but it's the faith. That underlies it. It's thinking that we have to somehow get God's attention so that he'll listen to us. Um, have you ever seen a child trying to get the attention of a parent who's having the conversation with somebody else? Uh, sometimes the, the child may behave well and may sit and wait patiently, um, but other times uh, what's the child doing? Like Desperately trying to get the attention of mom or dad or pulling the pant leg, pulling the jacket. My son likes to take my finger and try to just pull me aside. Um, God isn't like that. We don't have to pull at his pant leg to try to get him to notice us. He's loving. He's attentive. He is all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing. We simply need to come to him sincerely and plainly uh, and trust that he hears us. That's the call of these verses, I think. Sincerely pray to your father, plainly pray to your father, believing that he hears you. Don't offer up these empty phrases and empty words trying to get his attention. As a Christian, you already have it. He's a good father who wants what's best for you. So it's not the the quality of your prayers that's going to get you noticed. Uh, A friend of mine, he recently posted a quote online by a pastor named Jared Wilson that I think is helpful here. Um, Wilson, I think he's writing to pastors in this quote, but it applies to all of us. Uh, He says, You may think your prayers are nothing to write home about. That's fine. You're not writing home, but heaven. God is merciful. He accepts your lame prayers. What he wants is not your eloquence, but your heart. I think we need to hear that today. God is a good Father who Jesus says later in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 7-11, who gives good things to those who ask Him. Now, He may not always give us what we want, but He always gives us what we need. As John Newton so aptly puts it, he says, everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that He withholds. So, we may not always get what we need, but God always, we may not always get what we want, but God always gives us what we most need. So fight to believe that. Fight to believe that your Father is working for your good. He's making you more like Jesus. He's growing you in holiness. He's teaching you to depend on and trust Him. Fight to believe what Peter says. In 1 Peter 5, 7, when he tells us to cast all our anxieties on God because He cares for us. This is the character of the God we serve. He's a loving Father, and as His disciples, we should go to Him in prayer with the right heart. We should go to Him in prayer with the right beliefs, trusting that He hears us, trusting that He's out for our good. And that brings us to our last point. We must pray how Jesus taught us to pray. So look with me at verses 9 to 15. Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So in these verses, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us six things to pray to our Father in heaven. The first three, they deal directly with God and with our desires for Him. And, and I think the first three are all connected by the phrase that comes at the end, um, at the end of verse 10, "On Earth as it is in heaven." So in other words, I think when we read these first three petitions, we can read them as our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think that's applying to all three. Um, So when we pray that God's name would be hallowed, we're praying that his name would be treated as holy by all. God's name is treated as holy in heaven. And so we're praying that it would be treated the same here. And so the question for us is when we pray, is this the posture of our hearts? When we approach God in prayer, are we approaching him, recognizing him for who he is, treating him with the awe and the fear and the reverence that he deserves? Or do we immediately rush to whatever we need for the day? Um, I think that can be a good directive for us. I think that we need to pray that God's name would be hallowed, treated with reverence. Um, But the second petition, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're praying that King Jesus uh, would rule in the hearts of all people, Uh, that King Jesus would rule in the hearts of us as believers, that he would day by day conquer sin that rebels against him. And we're praying that King Jesus would rule in the hearts of those people on earth who are presently rebelling against him and rejecting him. So, so when we're praying for God's kingdom to come, um, we're praying for Jesus' reign to be acknowledged throughout the earth, just like it is in heaven. And so when we pray this kind of prayer, we can not only pray for each other and that God would help all of us to walk in obedience, to daily bow the knee to Jesus, but we can also, we should also pray for other people uh, we know who don't yet know Jesus to come to saving faith. You know, this is actually happening in our midst. Uh, I recently heard a story of um, a a young man here who goes to Bethel. He's in our children's ministry. Most of you probably know him. His name's Justin Santa Maria. Uh, I recently read read a story in an email of a Justin. He was having these communications with his, with his mom, I think, but with Neil and Cheryl Prentice, who are Bethel-sent missionaries in Mexico. And Neil had made Justin aware that there was a boy that he was reaching out to who wasn't yet a Christian, and he had asked Justin to pray. Do you know what Justin did? He prayed. Like, he was praying for this kid. And as, as you watch the email thread, as I was reading through the email thread, um, there aren't many exchanges because it actually seems to happen pretty fast. Um, but as Neil responds back um, to, to, to Justin and says, well, okay, here's an update, pray for this. You can see like, Gail's response, that Justin is praying. It's really encouraging. Like He's responding to the implications of Neil here. He's responding to what Neil's asking him to pray. And you know what happened in the end over a pretty short period of time, it seems. Neil reported back that this boy got saved. God answers these kinds of prayers and he's doing that even now through our body, even now through Justin, Santa Maria. So let's learn from Justin here. Like, let's do this. If we're not praying for those in our lives who don't know Christ, let's start today. And let's pray for each other too. This third petition here, Um, praying that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray this, we're praying that everything that God desires and decrees would take place here on earth as it does in heaven. Um, So, for example, things like uh, the commands of the Lord, the law. So um, we know that um, God expects certain things of his people. He has a moral law that involves things like not killing each other, not stealing, not lying, and not committing adultery and so forth. And we know by experience that that law isn't perfectly followed now. And so when we're praying for God's will to be done, this is part of what we're praying for, that he would be followed, that his will would be fully accomplished here on earth and obeyed as it is in heaven. And so do you see the content of these first three petitions? the content of the praying for God's name to be hallowed, the content of God's kingdom to come, and the content of praying for God's will be done, this is incredibly God and Christ-centered. This takes the focus off of ourselves, and instead we're praying toward God. And, and remember the, the title of our sermon series here, Renewing Disciplines? We're not only taking the action to renew our focus on prayer, but these disciplines, as we practice them, they renew us. So think about that in the context of these first three petitions. What do you think happens as we start to pray these kinds of prayers? As we start to pray for God's will to be done, for God's kingdom to come, for Jesus to save people? I think God changes us. He changes our hearts. He changes our motivations. He helps us to want him, to see him as the true supreme treasure. So in that sense, prayer actually renews us. It's renewing. And so I think that that provides us great reason to pray. Um, but let's, let's look at these last three petitions here in the Lord's Prayer. So Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, I think here, uh, when we pray this, what we're praying for is that God would provide uh, for all of our daily needs. Um, you know, living in, in America, um, we... I think, I think a lot of times, the t- or the temptation at least, um, um, might be for us to you know, move quickly past this petition. Because we don't really see a need a lot of times, do we, to, to go to God and pray for like, literally our daily bread. Most of us, uh, I would venture to guess, know that we're going to have food on the table this afternoon and this evening. Uh, and so we could see this and we could move right past. But I think that that would be a dangerous thing to do. I think that praying that God would provide our daily bread um, uh, is not only helpful and necessary, but it also shows our dependence on God. This is also part of the renewing effect of prayer. As we're praying for God to provide our daily need, think about what's happening in our hearts. We're actually confessing that he does need to provide our daily need. We're confessing that it's not us who's providing for ourselves, it's him. That what we have isn't our own, it's God's. Uh, And so as that happens, we begin to be renewed. And I brought a few uh, resources that I want to recommend this morning because with this text, we're biting off a a, a large chunk of Scripture. So much could be said about Matthew 6, 5 to 15. And so I actually want to recommend some resources that can, I think, help you as you uh, read and think further on this. And to this point, one of them is, is this book. It's called George Mueller, Delighted in God. It's by a guy named Roger Steer. Uh, if you're not familiar with George Mueller, uh, he's, he's no longer alive, but George Mueller ran a large uh, orphanage. And George Mueller is known for being a man of great, sincere prayer. So it's no surprise that in the context of, of this message and in this passage, George Mueller might come up because he think, I think he provides a good example for us here. And this book is absolutely incredible. Like, this is a guy who has loads of mouths to feed, uh, and who literally, like sometimes, doesn't know where the next meal is going to come from. He's he's praying that God would provide their bread that day, and it's so encouraging to watch God come through. Um, you know, so so don't read this book and expect. Uh, necessarily expect that God always behaves in this way, that God always immediately answers our prayers, because I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Again, when we pray for those in our lives who don't know Jesus, sometimes that can take years for God to save them. Uh, or sometimes um, they may not come to saving faith in Christ. So, so don't read this book and think, oh, I want to be like George Mueller. If I pray, then my prayers are going to immediately be answered. No, Read this book. I want to encourage you to read this book because I think that it can stir our affections for God and it can stir our affections for prayer, seeing just how God does and often works, uh, especially in the life of this man. So this is a very, very good book. Um, And if you want to take a look at it and maybe um, jot some stuff down about it so you can find it later, feel free to grab me after the service. So... We need to pray that God would provide all of our daily needs, but we also need to pray that God would forgive us daily for our sins. That's the next petition here in the Lord's Prayer. Um, we're praying that he would forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So quickly notice two things with this request. So one, as believers, um, we're asking God for forgiveness daily, not in order to be made righteous over and over again daily. Um, No, we're already righteous in Christ. So when we're praying this prayer, when we're asking God to forgive us for our sins on a daily basis, we're asking God to forgive us for these daily sins because they disrupt our fellowship, our communion with him. Uh, And so in, in a sense, when we are asking God to forgive us for our sins, yes, we are asking him to forgive us for a debt, but we are returning back to him. We're the wandering sheep who's running back to our Father and sitting at his side. So we need to confess our sins daily to Christ. But notice, too, that this request for forgiveness is actually related to our forgiveness or lack thereof of other people. So it's not saying that God forgives us because we forgive other people. Um, Rather, I think it's communicating the truth that if we really are in Christ, if we really are true disciples, we will be forgiving people. So if we're not forgiving toward others, then we have no confidence that we're in Christ and therefore no assurance that God is forgiving us when we ask him. And so the uh, implication of of praying uh, this prayer here is that we're um, praying for God daily to forgive us for our sins, but we are also recognizing our great need and being forgiving toward other people. Again, do you see how prayer is renewing? We're asking God to forgive us for our sins. That's daily reminding us of our need. And so then when other people sin against us, we are more prone to forgive them because we know our great need and we know how much we've been forgiven by God. So prayer has this renewing effect. And then the last petition of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, this asks the Father not to lead us into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. I love the way that um, Daniel Doriani puts this as well. He says, The third petition proceeds logically from the second. The man or woman who is free from the guilt of sin also wants relief from its tyranny. The previous petition asked for release from the guilt and penalty of sin. This one seeks release from its power and corruption. So we're praying to God, our good Father, to keep us from sin We're praying to God, our good Father, to keep us from temptation when we undergo trial. And so pray this prayer believing that God will answer. And pray this prayer taking the steps yourself to avoid temptation. So let's take a step back for a moment and consider um, where we've come in this passage. You know, one thing that, that we've passed over is that I think think Jesus assumes that his disciples are going to be praying. And I think it's evident in these verses. So three times in verse five, in verse six, and in verse seven, Jesus uses the phrase, when you pray, it's assumed. It's assumed that true disciples are going to be praying. Uh, The content here is not whether or not we should pray. It's it's how we're praying. It's the motive behind our prayers. It's the content of our prayers. Um, the fact that prayers are occurring is assumed by Jesus. Uh, so I think this week, let's respond to that call. Let's renew our focus on prayer. And, and, and here's a, a simple step that I would love for us all, myself too included, to take this week. Every day, let's commit to praying through the Lord's Prayer. So, verses 9 through 13. True disciples pray. True disciples pray sincerely with the right heart and with the right beliefs. So, let's open up our Bibles and find rest and hope and comfort and encouragement in praying the Lord's Prayer. And as a Christian, remember that those who pray with the right heart have God as their reward. Those who pray with the right heart can be confident that God hears their prayers, that he's a good father who loves to give good things to those who ask him. And let's focus as we're praying these prayers on how exactly prayer is also renewing. Remember, when we seek the Lord in prayer, uh, when we focus on praying sincerely with the right heart, when we pray fighting to believe that the father loves us and hears us and does what's best for us, when we pray how Jesus teaches us, God is changing us. God's molding and shaping our desires. Uh, He's he's changing our thinking. He's changing our priorities. He's satisfying us with himself. He's teaching us to trust him. Listen to this quote from Donald Whitney in in another great book, by the way. I brought this one too, because I also want to heartily recommend this, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian life. If you haven't read this, please read this. It's, it's phenomenal, and it's super helpful. Um, Whitney, in this book, just goes through spiritual disciplines, uh, one of which is prayer, and it's a really good chapter. So um, again, after the service, if you want more information about this, please come and see me. But, but in that chapter on prayer, uh, Donald Whitney says this, men and women of God are always men and women of God of prayer. My pastoral experience concurs with the words of J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle says, what is the reason that some believers are so much brighter and holier than others? I believe the difference in 19 cases out of 20 arises from different habits about private prayer. I believe that those who are not eminently holy pray little, and those who are eminently holy pray much I think that gives us a lot to think about. Uh, Are we going to trust God? Are we going to find God as the true reward? Is he going to be what satisfies us? Let's go to him uh, confidently, regularly in prayer uh, and pour our hearts out to him. Let's go to him sincerely, genuinely in prayer with the right heart. Let's go to him with the right beliefs, trusting that he's a good father who hears and answers us Um, because he is. We serve a glorious, glorious God. He is a great father and he has done everything necessary to reconcile us to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We have so much to celebrate and we have so many reasons to run to him in prayer. So let's do that now, Father. You are wonderful. You are awesome, uh, and God, we're just uh, we're amazed that um, you love us at how you love us, at how you showed your love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so God, I pray that this week, even today, you would remind us afresh of who we are in Jesus, and that that truth, the fact that we are righteous in Christ, would propel us uh, toward prayer, that we would run to you and find you as our true treasure, our true delight, and that we would sincerely and boldly and plainly pour out our hearts to you as a loving God who hears us. And so, God, thank you for who you are um, and that you love your people like this. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.